0: As most of you know, uh, my name is Drew, and my role here at this church, I don't know how many times my title has changed, but it's been a lot, but my my role here is uh, the minister to the next generation, so basically what that means is uh, teenagers and 20s. That's basically what that means, Uh, sixth grade through college and more, and so uh, the reason I tell you that um, is because uh, what we're going to do this morning and what I'm going to preach through is something where I want to invite you all in to what we're going to be doing with our youth. All right. So the sermon uh, I'm going to preach this morning is directly related to what we're about to start going through with our students, and I want you to be a part of it. And that's why uh, I chose to go this direction this morning. And so um, on Wednesday nights, over the next six weeks or so, we're going to be going through uh, a series called Committed on Wednesday nights. And we're going to be looking at how God calls us to commit every area of our life to him. And we're going to look at specific areas of our life that sometimes are a struggle to give to the Lord Amen. and to commit to him. And so the reason I say you guys uh, get to be a part of it and how I would ask that you do is that at the end of that study, uh, we're going to have a, a church-wide dinner at the end of that study where we can celebrate the commitments that people have made. And here's, what I, here's why I say that. I fully believe that uh, the students aren't the only ones that need to constantly evaluate their commitment to the Lord. That's something I think we're all called to do as believers. And so uh, I think this is something for all of us. And so what I would ask that you do is be in prayer for our students. And then each Sunday in the bulletin, I'm going to have something, I don't know, something small in there that goes through the main ideas of what we taught the previous week because I want as a church for us to be doing this together. I think commitment is an easy word to use whenever you're starting the new year, right? Everybody makes commitments to new things. That's not really the reason I went that direction. I've been planning this for a long time, but it timed out that way. So here we are. And so this morning, how does this relate? Um, Well, how does this relate? This morning we're in Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 23, and what happens here is that Jesus tells the disciples what it takes to be a disciple, and what it takes to be a disciple is complete, total, utter commitment to him. And that's what we're going to speak on, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. He wants everything from us. There's no such thing as lazy Christianity. It's not what we're called to. And so we're going to take a moment, we're going to pray. Uh, And then we're going to dive in a little bit this morning. So if you guys would, let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I ask that as we uh, study your word, Lord, that you would uh, just use me as a vessel to be true to what your word says. And Lord, that we would be uh, challenged and Lord, moved by your spirit in whatever way you would have for each and every one of us today. And um, Father, just uh, ultimately pray that you're glorified during this time. In your name I pray, amen. So we're in Luke chapter 9, and what I want to do is I want to give you some context, so I want to give you a little backstory back um, before we read it, okay? And so uh, we're in chapter 9. At the beginning of chapter 9 in the book of Luke, uh, he feeds the 5,000, okay? So he's, he's got this giant, massive crowd in front of him that he's speaking to, so he's not only feeding them, right, with physical food, which does happen, that's the miracle, but he's also speaking to them and teaching them. And trying to nourish that spiritual side of things as well. And so Jesus has this massive crowd that he's speaking to. And he feeds them, and whenever they disperse, Jesus goes off to pray. It says he prays by himself with his disciples. All right, so the disciples are there with him. And what happens is when Jesus is done praying, he asks the disciples, Who does everybody say that I am? Y'all remember that question? Who do you say that I am? Or who do they say that I am? Some said he was John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist, um, if my timing serves me correctly, had just been killed um, slightly before that. And they, they, they mentioned them. They mentioned Elijah or one of the other prophets. The names that they gave are basically anybody except who Jesus really was, okay? And so who do they say that I am? Well, maybe he's this person or this person or this person, but none of them get it. And then there's Peter. Usually when you say, and then there's Peter, something bad happens. In this case, something good happened, right? So, and, and so right here, Peter says, you're Christ, the Son of God. Immediately after that, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody. And the reason he says don't tell anybody is because Jesus is still hasn't gone to the cross yet. He still has to go to, He's going to the cross. He's going to raise again. And in doing so, those will be um, the most convincing proof of him being who he says he is. So he tells him not to, tell, not to say anything. And then Jesus takes the next step. He says, by the way, not really a by the way, all right? He, said, he says this multiple times. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. And then Peter opens his mouth, all right? That's the flip side. Peter opens his mouth, and Peter rebukes Jesus, right? And um, I don't know if you've ever tried that. It doesn't work well, okay? He, he rebukes him. He's basically saying, you have no clue what you're talking about. If you ever try to tell God he has no clue what he's talking about, you're wrong, all okay? right? Uh, he has a better clue than you do about anything and everything ever, all right, uh, and me, so uh, I just want to throw that out there, but, but he, re, he rebukes him, and Peter, Peter's telling him, you know, you have no clue what you're talking about, and so as we get to today's passage, all of this just happened. Not only does Jesus tell him he's going to die, but he tells him, you must be prepared to do the same if you're going to follow me. And then he assures them of that there's some glory that they'll see if they're faithful to follow him. And I want to the reason I started a look back a little bit further is because the passage we're looking at today talks about here's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but the starting point. Okay? The starting point of all of this is that we have to understand and acknowledge what Peter acknowledged, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the starting point. If we don't recognize that, then the rest of this doesn't matter. And so Peter makes this acknowledgement, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, the way that each one of us, whoever, sorry, let me start that over. Whoever you and I say Jesus is determines everything about how we follow him. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're not going to follow him in a way that's going to mean much of anything. If we truly believe he is who he says he is and we follow him, we're going to do exactly what he asks us to do, or at least seek to do exactly what he asks us to do. And so here's our, our, our passage, all right? We're, we're almost here, all right? One of the problems in today's church, however, uh, along with these, uh, these kinds of ideas, is that many think that when they come to Christ and become a Christian, they simply add Jesus to their life, where it's like, um, in other words, like we, we keep living our lives the way that we did before we don't really change a whole lot, maybe one thing here or there, we maybe change the radio station to something that's a little less vulgar or whatever, and, uh, and that's, that's kind of where it ends, and we just add Jesus, but it's still our lives, our will, our ways instead of his, and that's a common theme, and that's not what this verse talks about, it talks about the exact opposite, and so here we are, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Let's read it. Uh, uh, if you guys would just follow along, you can either use the screen in front of you or your Bibles. Uh, and here we are in verse twenty-three. He said to all, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits forfeits himself?" For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so we're just going to dive right in this morning. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, the first point is where we're going to camp and spend most of our time. So. I would say get comfortable, but if comfortable means falling asleep, don't get comfortable. All right? Uh, That's where I'm going to leave that. So here's the first thing in this verse. We're going to start in verse 23. Being Jesus' disciple, here's what it requires it requires complete commitment. That's what verse 23 gives us complete commitment and surrender. If you notice, verse 23 begins with the phrase, if anyone wishes to come after me, here's what that means it's a voluntary decision. Okay? It's a voluntary decision that we make. And what Jesus does, he continues with the rest of this because he wants them to understand the cost. All right? He sets the cost of discipleship as high as he possibly can and encourages them to do an inventory before declaring their willingness to follow. All right? It's a decision that you have to make, and yet you've got to understand the cost before you make that decision. And so he does that. And I mentioned before that the conversation with disciples. Uh, Right before that, he was speaking to the crowds, right? And there were many that thought following Jesus was easy. Many who wanted the benefits of following Jesus or the benefits of following just to see the show or the miracle or whatever it was that Jesus was going to do because Jesus did all sorts of stuff that nobody else could do and everybody wanted to see that happen in person. But Jesus says, no, 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 that ain't it. There's a cost. The cost is something far more than an abandonment of... uh, your material possessions. It's an unconditional surrender. See, as disciples, they weren't permitted to retain privileges or make demands. Uh, They weren't allowed to safeguard their cherished sins and say, well, this one's still okay. They weren't allowed to treasure earthly possessions or cling to secret self-indulgences. Their commitment was without reservation. And they gave all that up. To follow Jesus. See a little formal church going. Being a good church attender. Being a good Sunday school teacher. Going on a lot of mission trips. Tithing. Having a streak of days that you read your Bible or prayed. All that kind of stuff is great. But it's not what required. What he asks for is complete Commitment. And total commitment involves complete surrender. And here's what he does in verse 23. He gives them three imperatives for what it looks like. And this is why we're going to camp out here. Y'all can see this verse. It's jam-packed, all right? Here we are. Here's the first thing he says. He gives three imperatives. It's important that we understand the order, by the way. He says, deny self, take up your cross, follow me. Guess what? You can't follow him if you don't deny yourself or take up your cross. So it's in order for a reason. And so the first one here is to deny yourself. And basically what he's saying is is you need to refrain or restrain yourself from indulging in a pleasure. All right? Uh, In other words, do what Christ would do. And so you're telling your worldly desires no to do what Jesus would have you to do. And most of the time what he asks us to do is something that's countercultural, if y'all catch that or not. See, what it is when he says deny yourself is it's a call to give up and forsake anything at all that gets in the way or impedes or hinders or challenges yours or my allegiance to Jesus. Denying yourself is giving up anything that hinders that in any way, shape, or form. We're to forsake possessions, power, the favor of men, human glory, or anything else that has cost us loyalty to the Lord and challenges that allegiance. See, we have to deny the natural tendency and the natural bent that we mostly have toward earthly treasures, and we've got to make Jesus our treasure. We've got to make Jesus the treasure. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. By the way, that's a humbling verse if you haven't considered that. But I'm a good person. Well, it says nothing good dwells in you. Here's what the good is that dwells in you, is whenever you give your life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. There's the good that dwells in you. And so, in that verse, it gives us the idea here that the natural inclination of my heart and your heart is to resist Jesus, to resist Christ. The natural inclination is for self-glory. And that's what we're called to give up. To put aside self-interest, self-pursuit, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, self-indulgence. And anything else, desires, ambitions, thoughts, dreams, or possessions may interfere in your walk with the Lord. We're called to a life of self-denial that's marked by a willingness to obey his commandments. In John chapter 3 verse 30, um, is the phrase that I'm sure many of us have heard before. It says, he must increase and I must decrease. That idea of more of you and less of me. Denying self means I'm taking more of Jesus and less of me and my passions and my desires because I want them to line up with his. Now, for some of us, it can mean a lot of different things to deny yourself. It could mean passing on an opportunity to be in the presence of alcohol because you know that's a temptation for you. Maybe it's saying no. No when a pornographic image shows up on your TV or your phone or your computer and you deny the flesh. Maybe it's removing the idols in your life. That could be any number of things. Sports, TV, political parties, politicians themselves. I don't care what it is. An idol from your life. Or maybe it's denying yourself your rights for the good of others. See, people all the time use the excuse... That they have the right to do something. Guess what? Jesus did too when he gave his up. And So if we're a follower of his, we do what he did. And if that means we have to give up a right that we have, then we do that because Jesus did that. And he's our example. He's the one we follow after. Whatever that thing is for you or for me, I guarantee you that when you deny it here during this time on earth, it is worth it for the joy that you'll experience in eternity is worth it. The temporary things here don't compare. In Galatians 5 verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've crucified it, put it to death, denied the flesh to be his disciple. It's what we're called to do. The second aspect of this is taking up your cross daily. And that's an interesting statement, and here's why. Because the second that the disciples heard the word cross, they knew exactly what it meant. It, had, it was very specific, okay? Whenever they heard cross, they knew that the cross was an instrument of death used by the Roman government to kill the most vile offenders. They knew exactly what it was. The cross meant shame. It meant excruciating suffering. If someone said they needed to take up their cross, they would understand that as uh, the ritual where the person that was going to be crucified would carry part of the cross on their own back and walk to their own execution. And so taking up your cross would mean knowing that your life in this world is about to end. You were essentially a dead man walking when you were called to take up your cross. And yet that's what we're called to do. So what in the world... Does that mean and whose cross are we called to carry? Well, guess what? It says we're called to carry our own cross. You know why? We're not called to carry the cross that Jesus had to carry. He's the only one that could carry that. You and I couldn't. And so we're called to carry our own cross, and the cross is a symbol of God's will for your life and our willingness to suffer with him and for him. That's what it means to take up our cross. And we're willing to suffer on behalf of Jesus with him And for him, and we have to deny ourselves first in order to do that. See, this idea of bearing your cross begins when you or I give our life to Jesus and surrender to him. Bonhoeffer says this when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. That's the call. You got to be willing to give it all, to suffer and to die on behalf of Jesus. You see, if we're going to follow him, we must be prepared to suffer with him. The world hated Jesus. The world still does. The world met Jesus in person. The world killed Jesus. Throughout history, people have wanted nothing to do with this call to self-denial. Just hearing the name Jesus makes a lot of people uncomfortable and mad. And the moment that you identify with Jesus through your words and your actions, you can expect the same wrath expressed toward you. See, they can't get to Jesus anymore, but you're the closest target if you look like Jesus. So you're the one that's going to come after. In Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5 talks about blessed are the persecuted. And so there's this idea through those scriptures and many others that you are going to face persecution. You're going to have to suffer. I would suggest it would be a good time to sit and evaluate your walk with the Lord if you've never had to deal with suffering for Jesus or if you've never had to give up anything for him or never dealt with persecution. See, to take up our cross is humbling because we can't follow Jesus and still come first. Because that would make you the leader if you come first. You can't follow Jesus and still make yourself first. We can't do that. And the other thing this, word, this uh, passage in Luke talks about that I love is in this verse it says to carry your cross Daily. So this this passage is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And only in Luke does it use the word daily, which I find to be interesting. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at this specific one. Because I think it's a vital word that we need to consider. It means every morning when I wake up, I need to be able to, to go to the Lord in prayer first thing and just say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for you today. If that means I suffer for you today, I suffer for you today. If that means I give my life to you today, I will give my life and I will be in your presence. Whatever it takes. It's a daily thing. We can't take vacations from it. You can't take sick days from it. You can't be like, well, today I'm just going to choose not to. That's not the way this works. When you commit to Jesus, you commit everything to Him all the time. That's what He asks for. That's the requirement. See, for many, they want that idea of salvation, right? They want the idea of spending eternity in heaven and being saved. But here's the thing. You can't get the crown without the cross. The cross comes before the crown. You won't experience that until you take up your cross. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did you catch that? It's pretty clear. That is a part. You have to do that. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But in the end, this cross that sounds so scary to bear. Even Jesus going to the Father and saying, if there's another way. In the end, the cross was for Christ's glory. And when we take up our cross, it's for the glory of God as well. That's why it's that vital. Here's the last part of this, is it says to follow Jesus. And that's an interesting one, right? Follow, we know what it means to follow someone, right? Uh, in this case, um, we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Um, the living translation words it as, keep close to me, which I thought was interesting. Jesus says to pursue me, to walk in my footsteps according to my word, trusting my power and living for my praise. And I wanted to offer a visual to you this morning of what it looks like to follow Jesus. All right. So Christian, would you come on up? Uh, So I asked Christian to come up and help me with this for just a moment. Uh, I gave him an easy job. He literally just has to stand here. So he doesn't have to say anything. He just has to stand here. So it works out. Okay. Um, So those of you that are, uh, well, I'm not going to phrase it that way. Let's try this. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent or you've ever worked with kids, do you ever just like turn around and there they are? Right? Like, you're going to step on them and smash them or something because you don't know they're there, and all of a sudden you turn around and they're there. That ever happened, to anybody? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. All right. And so that's the idea. That's kind of the idea that's presented with follow me is that you're right there. Okay. And so Christian, go ahead and turn and face that wall. For the purpose of this, we're going to pretend like Christian is Jesus, but we're not going to let him get a big head about it. Okay. And so, uh, and so that's, that's his role right now. Actually, take a couple steps towards me. There you go. Right there. That's good. And so, if we're called to follow Jesus, we're not called to follow Jesus at a distance. Okay? We're not called to follow him at a distance. You know who did? Peter, when Jesus went to the cross. He followed Jesus at a distance, and what did he do? He denied him in the meantime. Right? And so, we're not called to follow at a distance, and here's why. If I follow at a distance, look at all this space between me and Jesus. I can get lost. I can get distracted. I can do a whole lot of things that don't reflect Jesus if I try to follow at a distance. Here's what I think it really means when it says to follow Jesus. It means that when I follow, I'm right here. I'm as close to Jesus as I can possibly get. When I look, when I look ahead, all I can see is Jesus. There's no room for me to be distracted. There's no room for something else to take me away. I am so close, I am right here. If he takes a step, I'm right there. Just like that kid that would come behind you where you would turn around and step on him. That's what it means, all right? <laughs> don't step on him. Uh, but like, you follow that close. There's no such thing. Thank you, Christian, you're good. You don't have to just hang out anymore. Uh, I prefer you stay in here, but it's fine. Um, And so the idea there is when he says to follow me, he's not saying follow me at a distance. He's not saying follow me only if it's something you, is comfortable for you or if it fits your time frame. He's like, no, 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 follow me. Cling to me. Be as close to me as possible so that nothing else can distract you and take me from you. That's what he's saying when he says to follow me. And I'm glad that most people can relate to that idea. We can't just follow Jesus to a point or from a distance. Because when we deny ourselves, we surrender everything that could interfere in our walk with him. And here's the beauty of all this. In the command to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus... Jesus leads by example. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to do something that he didn't do. He denied himself. He had rights. He had all sorts of things he denied. He took up his cross, literally and figuratively, carried it to Golgotha, and died for you and for me. And he followed the will of his Father. Even when he went to him and said, Lord, if there's another way but your will. He followed him so much he submitted to his will. See, we have a Savior that led by example. And he's telling us we have to give it all. you got to give up everything in order to gain everything. Told you we'd camp there for a while. I wouldn't lie. Here's number two. All right. Here's what being Jesus' disciple requires. It requires us to value your soul above all else. In verses 24 and 25, all right, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or in Matthew and Mark, it says his soul. And so he gives two examples. In verse 24, it's above your life. You gotta value your soul above your life. And so, um to save your life on your terms, to live as you desire, or uh, whatever the case is, like the world would say, do whatever you want, live free, it doesn't matter, do everything that you want to do. It's interesting that the world would view that as freedom, because biblically it talks about as being a slave to sin. When we live that way, we lose our life, our eternal life. But losing your life for the sake of Jesus saves your soul for all of eternity. In verse 24, that phrase, whoever loses his life for my sake. Aside from the command to follow me in the Gospels, this saying is repeated more time than any other saying. So outside of follow me, this is number two. It's a saying that Jesus used often, that you have to lose your life for my sake. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of Jesus. See, those who pursue a life of ease and comfort and acceptance by the world won't find eternal life. On the other hand, those who give up their lives for the sake of Christ are going to find it. And so we're called to value our souls above our own lives. And in verse 25, it talks about earthly possessions. So we're called to value our soul above earthly possessions. If somebody gained all the wealth, all the honor, all the fame, and all the pleasure in the entire world, all right? Think about that. If that were actually possible... Which it's not, because I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's like this scrolling thing of uh, who the richest person in the world is, and it like changes really often. Uh, anyways, it's, it's like you can, you can say you have everything, and somebody's still going to top you at some point, um, because you don't. But this idea of having earthly possessions, okay? We have to value our soul above that. If somebody had all of those things, all of the money in the entire world belonged to one person. All of the fame, all of the honor, all of the glory, all of whatever. But the only way they could gain all that was by denying Christ. Then they've lost their soul for eternity. What good will that worldly gain do? It's interesting. I don't know. It seems to be pretty common with a lot of rich and famous folks that so many deal with depression and some take their own lives and things of that nature, even though they have what most of us wished we had. Because those things don't provide satisfaction. They don't provide joy. They don't provide what we really need. We have to value our soul above earthly possessions. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted. Okay? In this story, uh, he's tempted by Satan. And here's what Satan offers him. All the kingdoms of the world. He offered him everything. He offered him everything. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus understood what was most important and he turned it down. We're called to follow and make the same decision. You see, Satan offers the things of the world because they're the most enticing thing that he can offer. Okay? They're the most enticing thing Satan can offer you is the things that you see in this world. You know why? Because if he tried to pitch hell to you, it wouldn't be very enticing, would it? (laughs) Here, come spend eternity in hell. Look, it's a beautiful place. It's not really going to be that enticing, right? The only thing Satan can entice you and I with is the things of this world. That's the best that he's got to offer. Jesus, on the other hand, has eternity in heaven to offer to those who follow him. Eternity. Not 50, 60, 70 years in one spot with temporary joy and satisfaction. All of eternity with more joy than you can ever fathom. In his presence, in his glory. That offer is way better. Consider the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 18. He was called to give up his wealth and he left crying. There's a reason that scripture speaks to how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. They value those earthly possessions as the greatest possible thing. But gaining the world is temporary and the soul is eternal. All other losses are bearable, but the loss of the soul is forever. It's to lose God, it's to lose Christ, it's to lose heaven, glory, happiness for all of eternity. It's to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. And to have all that the world has to offer and not have Christ is to be eternally bankrupt. We have to value our soul more than those things. And that has to drive our decisions and what we do. Here's number three. Number three is that we've got to live unashamed. In verse 26, it makes an interesting statement. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the angels. And so Jesus warns against being ashamed of him and his teachings. And so there's kind of this twofold thing here where the flip side is, if you're not ashamed, you get to experience some of that glory. Um, but if you are ashamed, it's a warning to you of what's going to happen. And it ain't going to be pretty. See, consider the crowds when Jesus asked who they said he was. Some were ashamed of Jesus. They didn't want to fully commit. They just wanted those benefits. The issue is, if you, you don't receive the benefits without the commitment. You don't receive them. You don't receive the crown without bearing the cross. You notice it says, ashamed of me and of my words. See, Jesus' person and his message are indivisible. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. The Great Commission tells us to teach people to obey what Jesus commanded them. See, that's a part of this. When we deny ourselves when we take up our cross, we're choosing to obey Jesus over our own ideas. This next idea really is something that I've been chewing on for a while. The human heart is never ashamed of what it treasures. I want to think about that for a moment. Whatever thing you value the most in life, are you ashamed of that? I had to answer that question myself. And I can tell you, if we value Jesus the way that we should, our heart's never going to be ashamed of him. There's many ways that we can be ashamed. We're guilty whenever we don't let people know about Jesus. We're guilty whenever we allow the fear of man to keep us from following Jesus in any way, shape, or form, or obeying him. Whenever we do those things, we're denying our master, and we're sinning. See, the wickedness of being ashamed of Christ is great. It's proof of unbelief is what it is. It shows that we care more for the praise of men whom we can see than that of God whom we cannot see. And in the day of judgment, they must expect to be disowned by Christ for all of eternity. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body, in hell don't fear people that's the reason that we're ashamed the only reason to be ashamed of jesus is because you fear what a person will say about you or think about you you fear man which is what we're called not to do fear the one that has control over your soul on the cross jesus eliminated your reason to be ashamed by taking your shame on his shoulders we're called to live unashamed of Jesus. Speak Jesus and show Jesus. That's the command. And here's the last one for you because I know y'all are waiting for the last one, right? So here we are. Number 4. Be ready to experience the glory of God. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be ready. And I I probably should have worded that a little differently. Maybe anticipate experiencing the glory of God, something along those lines. But in this last, uh, really, 26 and 27, he talks about coming in his glory and the glory of the Father. What it's referring to is his second coming. And so when he comes, uh, we can experience that at his second coming. For us, uh, when he comes in his glory, it's going to be amazing for you and I that are his followers. See, it offers this promise and it offers this warning. For the follower of Jesus at his second coming, it's going to be glorious. For the one who doesn't follow Jesus, when Christ returns, it will involve weeping and gnashing of teeth. For those of us that love Jesus we will experience and participate in the glory of God upon his return or our passing. Here's the other aspect. In verse 27, I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He says that you're going to experience the glory of God during this life. You're going to experience it during this life. You see, for the disciples, that could have been multiple things. All right, It could have been when the Spirit was sent down in the book of Acts. It could have been when the gospel was preached to all the world and the nations were brought to Christ. It could be when they saw the kingdom of God triumph over the Gentile nations and their conversions. It could be whenever uh, over the Jewish nation and its destruction. It could also mean when they witnessed the resurrection and the ascension. It could mean a lot of things for the disciples during this life. Uh, And there's a lot of different people that believe a lot of different things. Um, My personal thought is that what it's speaking to here about how they're going to experience it during this life, since it says some of them, is that it's referring to what happens directly after this, which is the transfiguration, where three of the disciples get to witness the glory of Jesus firsthand. And so... There's that opportunity, there's that option. For you and I, during this life, we have the opportunity to experience God's glory through the work of the Spirit in our own lives and through seeing the gospel preached to all nations and seeing people turn to Jesus. See, Jesus had to suffer. But Jesus made it clear that being his disciple wasn't easy. It takes total, complete commitment. And that's where we're ending today. It takes total complete commitment, valuing your soul, living unashamed and living in expectation of seeing the glory of God. And so as we close, here's what I want to ask of you today, all right? I want to ask uh, and this is going to be contradictory, all right, so you have to pay attention real quick. Uh, I want to ask that you guys close your eyes in prayer at this time. All right. And with the call to give it all. To be fully committed, I have some questions I want you to consider. And so what we're going to do, uh, I want to read them to you. i want to tell you what they are. I'd also, the reason I said it's contradictory is I asked you to close your eyes, but the questions are on the screen as well if you'd like to open them to look at that. But some questions I think it's worth considering as we finish up on this passage today. Have you died to yourself and denied the flesh? Have you taken up your cross? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you following Jesus closely or are you at a distance, still wandering away? Have you found your life in Jesus or is your life spent in other things? And is your soul a priority to you that you value that above anything and everything else? So what I want to ask is that we take a few minutes. Um, I, I believe this time is, we hold this time as a part of our service for the purpose of seeing what God wants to share with us, for the purpose of reflection. So I would like to ask that we take some time, reflect over that whole idea, because I guarantee I know in my own life there are things that I still have to work on that I haven't committed completely to the Lord. And So Dave's just going to play an instrumental for a minute. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll take a little time. You can do with it as you wish. Uh, you, can, you can sit and, and pray as long as you need to. Uh, when a song starts, you're welcome to stand up and sing, um, however God would lead. Um, but uh, I want to pray for you. So God, thank you for this opportunity today. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you gave uh, your life for us. And Lord, I know um, while it's not easy that you've asked for our full, complete commitment, God, I pray that our desire is to follow you closely. And God, that we understand that in the end, the things we have to give up here pale in comparison to what we have in you. Lord God, I ask that if there's anybody here today that has never done what Peter did, Lord, and recognized you and acknowledged you as the Son of God, and given their life to you, Lord, that today would be that day. Father, for those of us in this room that have been following you no matter how long, Lord, I pray that we draw closer to you and draw nearer to you during this time and as a result of your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen.